Well, good morning. I had the privilege of speaking during the Sunday school hour, actually answering some, some questions and answers, some, some back and forth. And I know that many, most of you were not able to be there at that time. And so I think it was a wise thing uh, that Jimmy and the pulpit committee decided to, to have additional time at lunch today. So I do hope that you'll take advantage of that, not just the meal, but the opportunity to get to meet my family and to hear a little bit more about who we are. Now, when I stood before you last in this pulpit, which was two weeks ago, I, uh, the last time I preached here, I told you that uh, I would be filling in for Archie a few times in the near future as he traveled uh, or as he uh, needed some time off. Because remember, Archie was going to have a change of life back on January 1, which did not quite happen as was hoped for and planned for him by him. But I was telling the truth when I said I'd be filling in for a few weeks and that when I did so, I wanted to share with you a series of sermons that I've done with Erskine students, many of whom are here this morning. Um, and it's a series on the hymns. It's a series on the church's music. That's a little bit of an unusual thing to do a sermon on, to preach on hymns and on hymn writers. But the title of the series is Gospel Truth, Something Worth Singing About. That gospel truth is worth singing about. So let me reintroduce that series and, and tell you what I'm going to try to do with our time together, and then, then we'll do it together. The first thing to consider in this series, and I want you to think about this, ask yourself if you believe these things to be true. The first thing is this, God has given us the gift of song. He's given us the gift of music. We are musical because he made us that way. And music has a purpose. Song has a purpose. Second thing I think is true is that when something is true, we say it. We affirm it, we declare it, we profess it, we confess it, we speak truth. But listen, when something is beautifully true, we sing it and we sing about it. Song, in that way, thirdly, is elevated speech. Some have called song glorified speech. And that's what I think music is. Music, the church's music, is glorified speech. It's elevated speech. And you think about our worship. We do say true things. This morning, we spoke words from the Shorter Catechism back and forth to each other. Words from the Westminster Confession of Faith we'll use. We profess and say true things in sentence declarations. But our hymns, and particularly our psalms, we lift up our voices in harmony and in song to praise God because he's made us to do that. Hymns are the church's poems of praise to God. The good ones, and not all of them are good, the good ones take the beautiful truths of Scripture and of the gospel and they join them together with our lived experience out there in our six days of labor in the world. 
The best hymns take biblical truth, words of scripture, words of the gospel, and wed it together with our struggles, our failures, our disappointments, our discouragements, and transforms all that into praise of God for his eternal truth that he loves his church and he will not fail his church. That's what hymns are. And you may not know this, know this, but in Reformed University Fellowship, RUF, the campus ministry that I've been a part of for 18 glorious years, um, we have what some would call a preoccupation with hymns. We sing a lot of hymns in RUF. And it's not because we think that previous generations were better than us or were better at writing church music than us, though that could be argued by some. We do think that previous generations had a love for Scripture and a knowledge for Scripture in a poetic form that brings it into the Christian life in a beautiful way. And sometimes these hymns, and I realize I'm speaking to some who maybe don't appreciate the hymns and maybe have an aversion to hymns. To, to, that, to them, I would share this quote. This is from an Ers- not an Erskine student. This is from an RUF student at Belmont University who came into the church not knowing hymns at all in the way that I've just talked about hymns. And then after some weeks, months, semesters of becoming familiar with Scripture and the Gospel, and singing those beautiful truths in hymns, this is what that student had to say. This is a girl named Lori. She said, coming from a typical praise chorus reliant high school youth group, I sort of turned my nose up as I was handed a notebook of hymns at my first visit to RUF. I didn't understand a lot of the poetic and imagery-driven lyrics, and even the word hymn automatically meant boring music to me. But as the weeks passed, I found myself falling in love with the old hymns and the idea of putting new and even beautiful music to them. The words are so profound and full of truth. One can't help but be broken. Singing hymns has seriously changed my life and freed me from feeling frustrated by surface lyrics that focus on how I feel about God, which is always changing. Hymns have allowed me to center my worship on the gospel, which in turn compels me to love the God I am prone to hate and wander from. Is it true that song can do something like that? If it's wedded to truth, it can do exactly that. And in this way, I told you that hymns, the songs of the church, become portable truth. We go into Monday morning with the ability to take God's word with us in song. Tunes that are stuck in your head. Tunes and lyrics that are stuck in in your heart. And in that way, truth becomes portable. It goes with us. It was Martin Luther who stood before his congregation. And in one hand, he held a Bible. In the other hand, he held a hymn book. And he held up the Bible to his congregation and he said, this is God's word. And then he held up the hymn book and you know what he said? And this is how we remember it. 
You see, if you're singing Scripture, if you're singing the truths of Scripture, then the hymns come alive and they become portable truth that goes with us into our six days of labor, back to our homes, with our children, and God works in that beautiful way. So on these occasions where I'll fill in for a week here or a week there, I intend to preach the biblical scriptural truths found in some of our hymns, the doctrines of scripture and justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification. I'm going to preach those biblical texts, but these sermons are different. These are different sermons for me, and they'll feel different for you because there's a lot of biographical information in them. Because I think when you learn about the hymn writer and their struggles and why they centered on the scriptures that they did, I think you're going to see it connects with your life, with your hurts, your disappointments, your joys, and your sorrows. And so, together, we're going to consider another hymn this morning, another hymn writer, but most importantly, the scriptural passages that make up the truth of the hymn. This morning, we're going to consider that sinners are welcome and that the righteous need not apply. This is Joseph Hart and his hymn, Come Ye Sinners. But first, a few scriptures that tie in the truths of the hymn that make it beautiful to us. A couple of different passages. I think they'll be printed on the screen behind me. First, Isaiah chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 55, verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money. And without cost, which is to say it is fully yours and absolutely free. Then Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30, the words of Jesus. Come to me. Come, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, actually quoting from Isaiah. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then lastly, Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners... To repentance. A lot of passages, all of them short, all of them focused on the kind of people that God welcomes and invites to himself. Let's pray that God will open our eyes to be those kinds of people. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as your word is opened up, as it's read and heard, 
Now as we hear your word preached, would you open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to see who we truly are and to see what the gospel truly is. And Lord, would you enlarge our hearts as we see the beauty and the grace of what you have done for sinners. We ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name, amen. And the sign said, long-haired, freaky people need not apply. Few people remember these lyrics. This is from 1971. I don't remember it from that year, but I remember it from my later years. The five-man electrical band had the number three song in the country that year. It was a song of, of protest of authority. Uh, the opening lyrics, which I just began to read, go on to say um, that a young man with his hair tucked up in his ball cap, so he looked clean cut, sees a sign outside of an employer that says, long-haired, freaky people, don't even bother coming in here applying for a job. You're not welcome here, right? Then he goes in and he takes off his hat after he's offered the job and shakes his hair out. He's like, you think I would work for you? Right, sticking it to the man. So it's clear in our culture, at least in 1971, that a message was being sent that a certain kind of person fits in, a certain kind of person belongs, and others don't. And unfortunately, that misunderstanding can exist in the church. We can have lines and boundaries that we create that God has never said exist. And so I have three simple points in our sermon this morning. They are simple, but I hope that they're helpful. The first is this. What kind of people does God welcome? What kind of people does Jesus welcome in the gospel. And then secondly, according to Scripture, what kind of people does God not welcome? What kind of people does the gospel not welcome? Because the Scriptures tell us. And then thirdly and most importantly, what kind of person are you? Out of those two categories, what kind of person are you and then a free fourth one, what kind of church is GPC? And how welcoming are we? So first, what kind of people does God, does Jesus welcome? What do the scriptures say about the kind of people that Jesus welcomes? Well, we heard in Isaiah chapter 55, in all these passages, we hear physical descriptions of spiritual realities. These are physical descriptions you and I would be familiar with, but they are speaking to the soul of man. They're speaking to a spiritual nature. In Isaiah chapter 55, those who are welcomed are the thirsty, the hungry, and the poor. That is to say, those who are needy, those who cannot provide for themselves, those who are dependent, those who have to ask for help. Those are the kinds of people that God says he welcomes. In Isaiah in the Old Testament, says it was so. And then in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me who? The weary and the burdened. Those who just can't 
take it anymore. Those who are overwhelmed and overcome, and they, they cannot take another step. Those are the kinds of people Jesus says are welcome to come from him, to him, because he will alleviate their burden. He himself will remove their burden and give them a lesser load and the ability to rest. And then thirdly, from Romans chapter 3, it's the unrighteous. The unrighteous. So capture here what scripture, this is Old Testament, New Testament, a descriptive of the kind of people that Jesus, that God himself, have come to welcome into the body. It's the thirsty, it's the poor, it's the hungry, it's the weary, the burdened, the unhealthy and sick from Luke chapter 5. It's sinners from Luke chapter 5. It's the unrighteous. There's your description of the kinds of people that God welcomes. J.C. Ryle said, Never does a person see any beauty in Christ as Savior until they discover that they are a lost and ruined sinner. Hear that again. Never does a person see any beauty in Christ as Savior until they discover that they are a lost and ruined sinner. So what do we do with all this? Well, we have to admit, when we look at one another, we are the lost, we are the ruined. We are the weary, we are the burdened, we are the thirsty, the poor, the hungry. We're the unhealthy and sick. If you want to be welcomed, from, welcomed by Jesus, he says, these are the kinds of people that I call to myself. So what do we apply from that? Some of us need to stop pretending otherwise. Some of us, myself included, need to stop pretending otherwise, as if we have it together. And that our families are a-okay. Because Jesus welcomes those who are overwhelmed and burdened and can't take another step, who need him, who call out to him to help. Because we are that ruined of a people. Amen? This is good news for those who know what it is to hurt. And yet our world and our culture tells us to hide it, to pretend it, to pretend otherwise. I was in seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, when one of my professors told us a story. His name is Brian Chapel. You may be familiar with him. He told us, uh, as young students of theology aspiring towards possible ministry, he told us a story, and I've never forgotten it, and I repeat it frequently. He said his first call to ministry out of seminary, he and his family and their young children went to pastor a little country church, I think it was. And after a few weeks, he decided he would start popping in on the people. When they gathered, he would gather. So he found himself in the women's prayer meeting with several older women. And he's just observing, just listening, and, and they're all greeting him. Oh, we're so glad you're our new pastor. We're so glad you're here. And then they moved into a time of prayer. And one of the little old ladies prayed, he said, a prayer that sounded like this. Lord, thank you for bringing us our new young pastor and his family, but help them to be patient with us since they don't have problems like the rest of us. 
He told us, he said, men, I went straight home. I called a family meeting. And I told my family, I don't know what signal we are sending, but we are not sending it anymore. We are oppressing these people with a lack of truth if they think we don't have problems and we have it all together. Now, something with that may resonate with you. You may deep in your heart say, yes, that's true. And can you see that you are that face and that person wherever God sends you tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock? You could take a message of having it all together and being tidy and spiffy and clean, or you could take the message of one who has been overwhelmed and burdened before, one who has needed help and knew where you could find it, and that you found it in the person and the work of Jesus. What kind of people does God call to himself? What kind of people does Jesus welcome? The thirsty, the poor, the hungry, the weary, the burdened, the sick, sinner who is unrighteous and knows it. Secondly, what kind of people does God or does Jesus not welcome? Is there a kind of people that God does not welcome? Well, in Luke chapter 5, 31, Jesus told us, I did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. In Romans chapter 3 and Luke chapter 5, He says, I did not come for the righteous. I came for sinners. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, another passage that we may have, we hear this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That tells me there's a third category of person that Jesus did not come for, and this one hurts a little bit. It's the self-reliant, those who trust in themselves, to fix themselves, that I will tidy myself up, I will clean myself up, I will reform myself, I will change myself, I got this as a worldview. That kind of self-reliance is not the biblical call to change because it's self-reliance. It's self-justification. It's proving yourself. And I talk to my students frequently through the years about proving ourselves to death. Always trying to prove ourselves to everyone in every conversation, in every action, in everything that we do. There's a part of us that is always trying to prove ourselves to one another. That we've got this. And it's just not true from a Christian worldview We can't prove ourselves through success in academics or athletics. We can't prove our stuff, ourselves through the stuff that we own, our gadgets, our cars, our homes. We can't prove ourselves through beauty, whether you're pretty or handsome. And like students, maybe you know what it is to try to prove yourself through your busyness, just being a busy person. 
I've always got somewhere to be and something to do. Very important person, right? These are the ways we try to prove ourselves and our existence. These are efforts often in self-justification. And Jesus says, I didn't come for those who think they can justify themselves. I came for those who know they can't justify themselves. Those who are at the end of their rope. Those who will stop pretending. Kevin DeYoung has a quote. I may have shared it two weeks ago. I can't recall. But he says this. He says, this has always been the offense of Christianity. That we are guilty of sin. We're all in need of a Savior. And the only Savior who can truly save is Jesus Christ the Lord. He says that has always been the offense of Christianity. That you have to be told and agreed that I can't fix myself. I'm a sinner, I'm ruined, and I need a Savior. Has that ever offended you? Has it offended your pride? Has it offended your efforts in self-justification? I think Kevin DeYoung is right. We have to be offended in some way by the gospel and by the cross and by Christ. If, we, if we're self-reliant people, we'll be offended by that. And Jesus came to offend that untruth in every one of us. And now thirdly, and perhaps most uncomfortably, so what kind of person are you? Are you a self-fixer? Are you a self-reformer? Or are you one who is willing to admit, I am a lost and ruined and broken sinner. I will make a mess of my life. At best, I can give the appearance of tidying things up, but the very heart of who I am is lost, ruined, and corrupt. That's the hard question before you. Can you admit that? Can you confess that? Not just in here on Sundays, but on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, at work, at home, at the gym, at the grocery store. Can you take that view of yourself into the world and be that honest? That you are ruined, you are broken, in need of redemption. That is that worldview of the church in the world. That is the view that the church and every member of the church has to have. That we are a ruined mess and other ruined messes are welcome to come. To find the Redeemer that we have found who has given us hope, who is slowly transforming us and changing us, but it was never in our ability, never in our beauty, never in our success, but always fixed on the person of Jesus. That's a hard call for self-evaluation, but that's my call for all of us this morning, to apply this message to yourself in this way, whether you're young or if you're older. Ask that hard self-evaluation question of yourself. Now, the truth is, I think we get to know ourselves often when we hear the stories of others, when we hear the testimonies of others. Now comes the hymn. Now comes Joseph Hart and the author of this hymn, Come Ye Ye Sinners. Let me tell you a little bit about the person in the life of Joseph Hart. And remember I told you that a good hymn takes biblical truth and weds it with real life experience, both the joys and the sorrows. 
So Joseph Hart was born in London, England in the early 1700s, 1712. And in his childhood, he was raised by faithful Christian parents, believing parents. They brought him up in church. They gave him a wonderful education. He had a classical education. Some of you are wonderful Christian parents seeking to raise your children for the Lord, making sure they get the best possible education. Maybe you resonate with him in that way. But then came his teenage years, the years of his youth. And reflecting on those teenage years, he would later say, I remember touches of my heart by the Holy Spirit, checks of my conscience by the Holy Spirit. I remembered that the whole church thing that my family did with me, it did touch me, he said, but it didn't touch me deeply enough. And he says he brushed aside that experience with the church, that experience with the gospel and with God's people. And he said, I brushed those aside for two things in his youth, the love of popularity and his ambition for success. Now think about your own life for a moment or the life of others you know. Have you known some who grew up faithfully in the church, but the love of popularity Ambition for success has found them brush aside everything that they knew to be true, at least for a season. That was true of Joseph Hart. But then comes his young adult years, what we would call his college and post-college years, in his 20s up to his 30s, where he is a young man now still clamoring for success and popularity. He would admit to feeling hollow in his heart, feeling empty and missing that church experience that had touched him just enough to make a lasting memory. So what did he do in his 20s? He threw himself into religious zeal. He became a strict religious practitioner. And after some years of that, guess what he concluded? I can't fix myself. Religion doesn't work. I'll make these rules of things I want to keep, and I can't keep them. So what he did in his later 20s was he punted it all. And he said, religion's failed me. I don't like it. And he became an antinomian, which means he was against the law. He said, look, I've heard all about this forgiveness. I'll just sin boldly and live wildly and let God forgive me all that he wants to. And he would go on living in wild sin living a life um, described somewhat graphically. I won't repeat some of what I read on him. But he would later regret what came of his life. And he said, I ruined my life and the people around me. And of himself, he would eventually say this. At age 28, an unknown crisis touched his life that led him to conclude, I am a monstrous sinner a bold-faced, audacious apostate. He spent two decades in that state. But the story starts to change in his 40s. Amen, 40-year-olds? The story for him gets better in his 40s. In his 40s, he would start to hear some preaching that would challenge his heart. George Whitfield was a part of this preaching. 
But the people that gathered in worship influenced him the most. He saw in their worship, in their lives, in their faces, something real that he knew that he never had. And one day after church, he went home and he was reduced to a puddle of tears because he had heard that Christ and the cross were for ruined sinners. And for the first time in his life, in his 40s, having grown up around all these truths, he gave himself to the gospel. He prayed for forgiveness, and he understood it, and he believed it in his heart. And he uttered the simplest of prayers. He said, Lord, make me of use to your church. Lord, make me of use to your church was his prayer in his 40s. He would then take his gift of writing poetry and say, okay, Lord, maybe this is what I can do. I'll take the scriptural truths I've heard of all of my life, never really understood, but I'm going to compose them into hymns in his 40s. He would then compile what was called Hearts Hymns, a compilation of almost 200 hymns that he wrote over the course of just a few years. Hart's hymns would become a beloved hymn book for the church. And he would end up writing well over 200 hymns in his remaining life. His last year was his 56th year. It's a short life for us. But he, he grew sick in the spring of his 56th year. He couldn't get out of bed. And his life came to an end. And you remember he had prayed that prayer, Lord, make me of some use to your church. And though in his 40s and though only living for some 12 or so more years, when they buried Joseph Hart, more than 20,000 people came to his funeral. Why? Because he had taken real life hurt, real life experience, and wed it to scriptural truth and enabled the people to sing to sing of their own failure and yet to find joy in Christ, to sing of their own ruin but find hope in Christ. His most popular hymn is that hymn, Come Ye Sinners. Now, we sing this in RUF all the time. I don't know how familiar you are with it. It may be you don't know this hymn at all. But I want you to, having heard of his life, having heard of the outline of his life, some of the words, some of the lyrics that we sing ought to jump off the page to you. Because when he says that Jesus is full of pity and joined with power, think about what he's saying there. You know, it would do us no good if Jesus was just a savior full of pity. If he didn't have power to do something about sin. And he is an empathetic savior. Jesus is both. And Joseph Hart found that to be true in the Christ he would ultimately believe in. He says, come to Jesus Christ without money. Come to Jesus Christ and buy without money that it is full and it is free. It's been paid for by somebody else. Now you just come and you enjoy. And then in stanza three, he says, and this is it. If you tarry until you're better, if you wait until you fix yourself, you'll never come at all. That's his testimony. He had tarried and tried to fix himself with religion and realized, I can't do it. I can't fix myself. And so he says to us in this, in his testimony, if you tarry, if you wander about until you're better, you're never going to come to Christ. 
So you come as a ruined sinner. You come as a broken sinner. Don't dream of fitness fondly as if you're ever going to belong on your own. The only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Or we might say to know your need of him. It's a beautiful hymn. It's the story of Joseph Hart, the joys and sorrows, wed together with his experience and with gospel truth. And it is something worth singing about. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing as an act of worship those very words that we'll try to apply to ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you together as a church family for the beauty of the gospel, that you have come for lost and ruined sinners, that we might pretend to have it all together and to be tidy on the outside, but Lord, we know that our hearts are dark, ruined messes. We thank you that those are the kinds of people who can come in the presence of Jesus, looking to him and calling upon him for grace and for favor. So Lord, would you do that this morning as we sing? Would this song even go with us into the week, lifting up our sad hearts, showing us the joy and the confidence that we have in Christ? We ask this, we pray this, and we sing this in Jesus' name. Amen.